Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star, then zero on your touch-tone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Emma, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, Early Stage Breast Cancer New Treatment Approaches. And today's program is supported by Novartis Oncology, and I really want to thank them for their support of this program. We have today on the program over 230 participants who come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, Germany, Ireland, Pakistan, and the United Kingdom. So this is a bit of a global call as well. It is a global call, and we are delighted to have all of you on the call today. And now it is my great pleasure which is our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Ann Blas. Dr. Blas is Professor of Medicine and Division Director, University of Minnesota, Division of Hematology, Oncology, and Transplantation, Director of Cancer Survivorship Services and Translational Research, Masonic Cancer Center, Member Masonic Cancer Center, Section Lead Medical Oncology, Hematologist Oncologist, Past Chair American Society of Clinical Oncology, Oncology's Cancer Survivorship Committee, Member Executive Board, Global Cancer Cardio Oncology Society, Associate Editor, JACC Cardio Oncology, and Section Chair, Section Editor, Hemonc Today on Survivorship. And Dr. Blaze will be addressing overview of early stage breast cancer, including diagnosis and staging, communicating with your health with, with the breast care with the breast cancer healthcare team, key questions to ask, and diagnostic testing and technologies including hormone status, biomarkers, genomics, and genetic testing. It's really my great pleasure now to this program. Over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Blaze. Great. Thank you for having me here today. I uh, really appreciate the invitation. I think when I think about early stage breast cancer, I think about somebody who has cancer that's defined or confined to the breast itself or to the lymph node area. When somebody comes in with a new mass that's picked up on breast imaging or it's something that they palpate themselves or appreciate in the breast themselves, um, really the first set of things that happens is they undergo additional imaging and a biopsy. Um, in the case of early stage breast cancer, we think of cancer that's confined to the breast and the lymph nodes and hasn't spread somewhere else in the body. So typically when somebody comes in, I usually go through with them, what does the pathology actually look like? Like what does the cancer look like under the microscope? So patients, oftentimes the most common subtypes are invasive ductal carcinoma or invasive lobular carcinoma. They comprise the most common subtypes of breast cancer. Ductal carcinoma really meaning a cancer um, that's confined to the ducts of the breast but has um, an invasive component where it can travel outside the bracelet membrane and spread somewhere else in the body. Anytime somebody has a new breast cancer diagnosis, the pathologist will do special staining, um, and they'll look at particular receptors, so estrogen, progesterone, HER2 um, at a minimum. Um, and essentially, those are things I would tell anybody who has a new breast cancer diagnosis that you want to take a look at and you want to write down and understand. And that's particularly important when we think about how to treat them. And so if you're talking to other patients or you're wanting to know, am I getting the right treatment? Um, these are actually really important things. Um, and they're not all the same. So somebody whose receptors are all negative is going to be treated differently than somebody who is HER2 positive, for example. Um, when we think about staging, staging really means how much has the cancer spread? Um, and in general, there's a couple different staging classifications that can be done. Initially, they're done by clinical presentation. So part of that clinical presentation is looking at the size of the cancer. We think of early stage ones as being under two centimeters. 
whether or not there's lymph node involvement. And then the newer classifications also incorporate the receptor statuses as well, so really taking into consideration the biology itself. We tend to think about uh, or classify breast cancers as hormone positive, meaning they overexpress estrogen, as HER2 positive. There is a subset that overexpress both hormones and HER2. And then we also classify those that express none of those markers as triple negative. And I'll come back and talk a little bit about that and why that's important. Um, HER2 testing, so how do you communicate with your breast cancer health healthcare team? What kinds of questions do you wanna ask? So initially, you wanna ask how much is this spread? Is this only in the breast? How large is the mass that we're seeing? Are there multiple masses that are there? Do the lymph nodes look like they're involved? I think the other thing, that's going to help them understand how to stage you. And they typically can provide you what we call a TNM staging, which T stands for the size of the tumor, and the lymph node status, and M meaning has it spread anywhere else in the body. They'll explain to you the hormone receptor status, so that estrogen receptor, the HER2 receptor, um, as well as in many cases, um, they'll also look at a proliferation index called KI67. In an example where all of those are negative, sometimes an additional receptor called PDL1 is also looked at, which helps us look at whether or not you may be sensitive to a type of immunotherapy. I think when somebody comes in with a new breast cancer diagnosis, the one thing that can sometimes be confusing is HER2 testing. So for a long time, this was either positive or negative, and it was defined based on immunohistochemistry, which is a way of staining and looking at overexpression of this um, um, by actual staining on the sample itself. There's a second technique that can be used um, called FISH, or fluorescence in situ hybridization. Um, those that are strongly um, positive by IHC or that staining are considered HER2 positive. The same thing if we see high levels of expressions of a ratio by fish. But there's now a classification called low HER2, which in early stage breast cancer is less important in terms of how we actually treat it. But it's something that individuals may read about um, or if cancer came back may um, make them eligible for other kinds of medications such as NHER2. So when communicating, communicating with the breast cancer healthcare team, I would ask the question, do I need systemic imaging? Most patients with early stage breast cancer do not need PET CT scans. Um, in some situations, they will get a CT scan or a chest X-ray. Um, in other situations, particularly for stage one disease, it's really not needed. It's based on whether somebody may have symptoms that um, we want to work up with additional testing, such as if somebody has back pain. Um, systemic imaging is oftentimes reserved for patients who have more advanced a stage two or three disease with lymph node involvement. And based on the staging and information, I think the appropriate questions to ask will be whether or not they need chemotherapy, surgery, radiation, and endocrine therapy. And what about immunotherapy? So today, we're using immunotherapy in triple negative breast cancer predominantly. There are some clinical trials that are also using immunotherapy in hormone receptor positive and HER2 positive breast cancers, but those are only available in a clinical trial. So that may be another question to ask. Um, if they need chemotherapy, um, oftentimes it's done prior to surgery, which is really a difference in how we practice compared to how we practiced 10 years ago. Um, some of the recent exciting news out of our ASCO 2023 meeting just a couple of weeks ago also looked at a role for medications such as CDK4-6 inhibitors. And these include two different drugs called Kiskali, K-I-S-Q-A-L-I, or Verzenio, V-E-R-Z-E-N-I-O. Um, these are used in particular situations, and I know Dr. Wade-Smith is going to go through this in a little bit more detail. Um, when we think about how to approach somebody with early stage breast cancer, um, the other things I would mention is when I think of somebody coming in with a hormone receptor positive breast cancer, 
we really treat their cancer based on the biology. So typically in those situations, patients will have genomic testing performed on the breast cancer itself. That genomic testing, the most common panels are called oncotype or mammoprint. These are typically done to really look at the drivers or the biology of the cancer besides just what we're seeing by the special staining. So they give us a recurrence score. Um, in the case of mammoprint, it's really high or low. In the case of oncotype, this is uh, a score that's given that helps to really predict whether or not somebody may benefit from the use of chemotherapy for a hormone receptor positive breast cancer. And we, when we say genomic testing, in this case, it's really looking for mutations in the cancer itself. These are not germline mutations like hereditary genetics, such as a BRCA mutation, but really are looking at um, so what we call somatic mutations or changes actually um, in the cancer itself that are driving the biology of the breast cancer. In the case where there's high proliferation, those cancers tend to benefit from the use of chemotherapy. In the setting of HER2 testing or HER2 positive breast cancer, typically neoadjuvant um, chemo and HER2 based therapy is recommended. Um, and this is done in combination with chemotherapy and medications such as Herceptin and Progetta, which are antibodies against HER2. Depending on the response that individuals have, they may continue on to Herceptin based therapy after surgery. Um, this is sometimes retailored um, using an antibody drug conjugate called Kedsyla. And in the case of triple negative breast cancer, beginning last summer, about one year ago, for tumors over two centimeters, um, immunotherapy is used in combination with standard chemotherapy. This is again given for um, before surgery. And then treatment is tailored after surgery, depending on the response actually that somebody has to that. So the goal of doing chemotherapy when it's indicated before surgery is really to achieve what's called a complete pathologic response, where when a patient goes to surgery, there's no cancer left. Um, in the situation where there is some residual cancer that's still there, we're able to tailor um, patient's treatment after surgery um, to sometimes use novel agents, such as a PARP inhibitor, for those who have a BRCA mutation, or to continue immunotherapy, or in the situation of HER2-positive disease, of using a Herceptin-based therapy that's different than what they might have received pre-surgery. Finally, I'll just mention before I turn it over to Dr. Smith, um, that for, in our practice, actually, um, all patients with breast cancer are recommended to consider genetic testing. Based on current guidelines, um, any individual with a family history of breast cancer or ovarian cancer, those individuals who have triple negative breast cancer or those that are particularly young, uh, under the age of 50 at the time of diagnosis, are all recommended. Given the fact that we now are able to tailor people's treatment, um, for uh, using particular medications when there is a germline mutation, many practices and groups such as our own um, now recommend genetic testing for all patients. So with that, I'll go ahead and turn it over to our other speaker. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Blaise. That was really wonderful. It's just a wonderful presentation. And, and the program today, lots of information. I'm sure there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. So thank, thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Wade Smith. Um, and Dr. Smith is breast cancer specialist, assistant clinical professor, Department of Medical Oncology and Therapeutics Research, City of Hope. And Dr. Smith will be addressing what specialists comprise the healthcare team, medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, surgical oncologists, and genetic counselors, current standard of care, and new, emerge, and, new and emerging treatment approaches, and taking treatment on schedule, the importance of adherence. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Smith. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. Uh, happy to be a part of this program and uh, looking forward just to sh share some of my experience as well as updates with regard to the management of early stage breast cancer. A lot of um, what I will say will kind of dovetail with Dr. Blaze with regard to staging um, as we talk about you know, what the standard of care is for patients who present with early stage breast cancer. Again, these are patients being treated with curative intent. So the goal is to remove the cancer, 
treat it in a way that will reduce the likelihood of the cancer coming back either within the breast or somewhere distant. And to do that, we have a team of specialists, including the medical oncologist, the radiation oncologist, the breast cancer surgeon, as well as other specialists, which may include a plastic reconstructive surgeon, as well as um, genetic counselors, a genetics team, as well as we also incorporate other ancillary team members as well. So really the medical oncologist role, the way a lot of us think about, you know, we're, we're very much centered in the continuity of care. We see patients at the very beginning. We help to formulate the treatment planning that will carry forward, uh, and we coordinate our efforts uh, oftentimes in the form of a tumor board, a hospital-based or clinic-based tumor board with other specialists. And uh, as such, we, um, we establish the care plan as well as following patients uh, on out for five years, sometimes seven years, sometimes 10 years on out, sometimes even into the survivorship period of their health care. So uh, with respect to what we provide um, in terms of treatment, we think of chemotherapy, we think of immunotherapy at times, we think of hormone therapy such as tamoxifen or aromatase inhibitors. Uh, we also uh, provide other, other means of um, treatment such as, you know, regarding bone health, um, you know, bone strengthening agents. And um, so uh, we also just, you know, really try to um, incorporate ourselves to, uh, towards enhancing the, the overall, you know, global care of the patient. The radiation oncologist uh, works along with us and uh, they um, coordinate care um, particularly with the surgeon who I'll also explain. And they provide, when indicated, radiation therapy, often in the form of external beam radiation. A patient lays on a table, they receive a fractionated radiation dose, you know, daily for three, sometimes five weeks. They can also provide radiation therapy in the form of intraoperative radiation therapy, particularly those specific cancers that are small with a low uh, overall risk of recurring. And then there's the breast surgeon. And the breast surgeon obviously plays a very pivotal role in staging the breast cancer at the very beginning, uh, ordering the appropriate imaging, making sure that the breast cancer can be successfully removed uh, with clear margins and the lymph nodes can be adequately staged. And so, um, so basically they also talk to the patient about what type of surgery to pursue either breast-conserving surgery in the form of a lumpectomy or a mastectomy where the majority of the breast tissue is removed, and that often is accompanied by reconstructive surgery, and therein lies the role of the plastic surgeon. You know, our breast surgeons as well as in other centers will work with the plastic surgeon from the very beginning. We try to have the patient meet with the plastic surgeon, and that often can really help to kind of formulate the, the surgical decision-making so that the patient can, you know, visualize and prioritize you know, what's important going forward, not uh, just from a cancer control standpoint, but also from an aesthetic standpoint as well. And so also as part of the team, we have, um, we incorporate clinical research staff so that we know if there's any clinical trials that are applicable, we can enroll a patient, you know, from the very beginning, at least screen them. And uh, we also have a clinical social worker who, you know, is very helpful in making sure that all um, you know, uh, supportive measures are in place going forward. And as well, we also try to incorporate, when possible, a patient care navigator um, where available. And, you know, that's something to ask about. Patient care navigators can often help patients uh, make their appointments, know where to go, um, you know, know what needs to be done before initiation of treatment. And so uh, that, that's a very important uh, team member with respect to, uh, you know, compliance and maintaining therapy. So getting into the standard of care. So, you know, the standard of care really depends upon what breast cancer subtype we're talking about. And the easy way to think about it is really, I think of invasive cancers as by and large one of three. Um, as explained, there's the hormone receptor positive, which we sometimes call luminal breast cancers, and they can either be ductal or lobular based on the appearance of the microscope. And, you know, th these represent about 70% of breast cancers. The second group of breast cancers, triple negative breast cancer, about 10 to 15% of breast cancers are, again, those cancers that don't stain positive for estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, or, or HER2. So we call it triple negative. 
And the third type of breast cancer, about 15 to 20 percent of breast cancers, HER2 positive. And so all three of these types adhere to a different standard of care with respect to surgery, but most importantly, uh, uh, relevant to us, systemic therapy. I'll also mention that there is non-invasive cancer, DCIS, LCIS. That is which, what we call stage zero, so I'm not really discussing that. That's um, really a cancer that's caught at a very early point in time that can typically be curatively managed with surgery, and there also can be a role for giving uh, hormone therapy such as tamoxifen after. But addressing invasive cancer, it's starting off with a luminal breast cancer, Surgery is the cornerstone of therapy, as is with the other subtypes of breast cancer. And so, um, you know, based around surgery, we then decide what additional treatment is needed and when to give it. And we start with the question of chemotherapy. Chemotherapy for these luminal hormone receptor positive breast cancers are typically, is typically given after surgery, but oftentimes can be given before surgery, particularly if we want to shrink the tumor down and give the surgeon more opportunity to either preserve the breast or reduce the number of lymph nodes that have to be removed. So for, you know, very um, aggressive breast cancers when they present, maybe they're inflamed, very large tumors that are hormone receptor positive, we do give chemotherapy first often. And so um, the other question pertaining to chemotherapy with regard to these luminal cancers, when do we give it? Do we have to give it? And a test that we have adopted regularly um, is the Oncotype DX test, which many of you probably know about. And again, this is a, um, this is a gene panel test that essentially uh, allows us to determine whether these cancers are low risk, intermediate risk, or high risk. And we've had recent data presented that gives us a pretty specific cutoff as to which patients benefit from chemotherapy. So fairly routinely with these luminal breast cancers, we ordered the Oncotype test. And um, one question that is often asked, if I have more than one you know, tumor in the breast, should I have each tumor oncotyped? And the answer is quite often yes. Um, or if there's a um, disparity or difference between one uh, tumor versus another, uh, we'll often oncotype both. Uh, and um, we, don't, uh, we don't have the ability to oncotype cancer that's involving a lymph node. Uh, we sometimes, in some instances, can oncotype a tumor based on the biopsy, even before we proceed to surgery. Again, just helping to answer that question, is this patient really going to benefit from chemotherapy? And so, um, so I've talked about that. And, um, you know, one, one question that's asked with regard to surgery, um, what, how is, are, are the lymph nodes managed? And sentinel lymph node biopsy really helps to answer the question, has the cancer spread to the lymph node? And that's done at time of surgery. Uh, a um, radio tracer is injected, it travels to the nearest lymph node, and then that gives us an idea whether other lymph nodes under the arm on the same side of the breast involved um, are involved with cancer. And so, you know, there's, there's, there's emerging data to kind of direct us uh, whether or not a patient needs a subsequent surgery or more lymph nodes removed. And we typically speak of three or more lymph nodes um, will require uh, removal or dissection for additional lymph nodes. And so um, I talked about, in a sense, the luminal, the, the, um, uh, the way we approach it with respect to the chemotherapy. It's um, really we're now at a point of offering one of two different regimens for, for the most part. Uh, one is a, consisting of taxotere cytoxin. Another is adriamycin cytoxin followed by taxol. So those are the two regimens we most often use, just depending on you know, how aggressive the cancer is at presentation. Um, and, you know, we incorporate a chemotherapy teaching. We try to answer all the questions before starting chemotherapy. And, um, again, emphasizing the importance of maintaining chemotherapy schedule. So oftentimes patients will have to clear their schedule and, um, you know, uh, really commit to um, modifying their lifestyle for, from anywhere from three to five months. So um, some other aspects regarding the most common, this most common type of breast cancer, the luminal. Um, some patients ask about a breast cancer index test. That's a test kind of similar to the Oncotype. It looks at the gene expression of this hormone receptor positive breast cancer and basically tells us how important is the extension of giving endocrine therapy. And, um, and so I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that. And obviously it pertains to endocrine therapy and I'll get more into the endocrine therapy, but I'll, I'll just say that the breast cancer index test I think is useful for some patients. Um, 
particularly those that have received five years of tamoxifen and we're trying to decide whether to continue an extra five years or um, switch to an aromatase inhibitor. I think probably for the majority of my patients, I don't use breast cancer index. It's really just within that limited scope. So having said that, and now going on to endocrine therapy or hormone therapy, um, as mentioned, uh, we either look at tamoxifen or aromatase inhibitors, and largely this decision is based on whether the patient is premenopause or menopause. Premenopause patients have options based upon how aggressive their cancers are and the age of the patient. For an aggressive cancer, we often look at ovarian suppression plus either tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor and we commit to treatment for five years. And so obviously, tamoxifen is the better tolerated, and, um, but unfortunately, it does have a, a higher risk of the cancer coming back if the patient is at high risk. So by adopting ovarian suppression with either injections to suppress the ovaries, such as Lupron, or removing the ovaries with surgery, we're able to further lower the risk of the cancer coming back. But along with that does come added side effects. So that's a whole discussion we have with our premenopause patients. Um, with respect now to menopause patients, aromatase inhibitors are preferred. Um, they, they have an a, a, um, overall better outcome, uh, although there can be side effects associated with these, including joint stiffness. It can increase cholesterol and lower bone density. Um, with respect to duration of treatment, and I talked a little bit about that breast cancer index test, I will say this is kind of a very area of um, continuing to be determined. And we feel that a five-year treatment course is really the, the minimum required to optimize benefit. But for patients that are at higher risk, either in the premenopause or menopause category, we will continue on to seven and sometimes 10 years, just depending on how high risk they are, as well as how well they're tolerating the endocrine therapy, the hormone therapy. So I've talked a lot about the, uh, the, the luminal uh, triple negative. I'll just simply say this is a higher risk breast cancer, um, but fortunately with the proper treatment, we do cure the majority of these patients. Again, triple negative breast cancers, we treat with chemotherapy for typically a tumor size of greater than 0.5 centimeters. And the chemotherapy we choose uh, can vary. And for our higher risk patients, we adopt a regimen that uses chemotherapy and endocrine therapy, or rather, I'm sorry, um, chemotherapy and immunotherapy. That immunotherapy is called pembrolizumab. And uh, essentially, this has been shown to improve outcome. But again, we're talking about a five-month treatment course prior to surgery. And of course, we do give chemotherapy for the most part before surgery for triple negative breast cancer because that allows us to really assess the response, how well did this tumor respond. And um, and with, we then assess the response at time of surgery and decide what additional treatment is needed afterwards. With regard to the higher risk triple negative breast cancer, the immunotherapy, the pembrolizumab will continue on even after um, surgery. And so immunotherapy, pembrolizumab, can carry with it its own side effects. So that really involves a lot of discussion with the oncologist, um, education, just to be alert for some of the kind of autoimmune inflammatory side effects that can occur. And then for our last subtype of uh, breast cancer, the HER2 positive, with respect to standard of care, these are treated in a very unique way where we incorporate trastuzumab, pertuzumab, which are uh, antibody immune therapy drugs that are given along with chemotherapy that have really made this challenging cancer um, curable in the modern era. Um, and so it, Treatment really depends, as with the other tumors, how advanced, how aggressive this cancer presentation is for each patient. So for um, you know, our, our stage two and stage three patients, meaning large tumor, lymph nodes involved, we give a four-drug regimen of chemotherapy, immune therapy, and then we assess response at surgery. And just like with the triple negative cancers, this is very important because at time of surgery, it's, the tumor becomes kind of the canary in the coal mine. If we see a complete response, then we know this treatment has effectively done the job, uh, most likely, of eradicating um, cancer cells that are outside of the breast, thus a lower risk of the cancer coming back somewhere distant. But if, for instance, that tumor did not respond, then we'd look at modifying the treatment after surgery for these HER2-positive breast cancers. And that can be done either on trial or off trial. But for instance, off trial, meaning standard of care, we have a drug 
uh, trait uh, that's called Cadsyla that we um, give to patients uh, for 14 cycles after surgery um, to help lower the risk of the cancer coming back. So I've mentioned pretty much the standard of care with the major cancer subtypes. Um, just with the remaining time, I'll mention there have been some um, notable uh, updates with regard to uh, recent um, meetings and publications. Uh, some things that could be said uh, that are new. As mentioned, we have um, a new medicine that can be added for the luminal ER-positive breast cancers that are at high risk, either premenopause or menopause. Um, the Verzenia or abemocyclib had been mentioned by Dr. Blaze. We now have a new drug that shows promise, ribocyclib, uh, that was presented at our recent meeting. Uh, it's somewhat early data, so we want to see kind of how this pans out, but it would be nice because these were patients who did not have positive lymph nodes. And so um, it helps us to kind of extend um, being proactive in patients who aren't quite as high risk as the other patients that had qualified for the Verzenio medicine. So again, if you have a hormone receptor positive breast cancer, high risk, you've had your surgery, there is a new targeted medicine that can be incorporated with the hormone therapy taken for either two, taken for two years now or with this new medicine three years that can further reduce the risk of the cancer coming back. Um, from the standpoint of other updates, uh, you know, we talk about the Oncotype test. Whenever we have an Oncotype number come back, we still have to dis make decisions about, you know, again, what that question is asking, does this patient need chemotherapy? And, for instance, there was one study that showed that African-American females had actually worse outcomes, even with the same Oncotype reporting, as did Asian and um, non-Hispanic whites and Hispanic patients. So, you know, there's multiple factors taken into account, even when given an Oncotype report, as to how high risk this patient is that the oncologist has to incorporate. Um, also interesting um, updates, there was uh, basically a, a study showing that women under 42 um, could potentially pause their, you know, their hormone therapy after surgery if wanting to become pregnant. Um, and so this is always a, a question that comes up uh, with regard to women who are young who want to go on for family planning. Can they come off their hormone therapy? This data called the positive trial um, is compelling. I think there needs to be more validation. As of right now, we ask patients to wait two years before uh, attempting pregnancy um, following their surgery and being on a medicine like uh, tamoxifen or aromatase inhibitor. I know there's so, so much more to say, and I think probably during the Q&A you'll probably ask lots of questions that you'll be able to address um, more about. Um, this is fantastic. So thank you so much for your presentation, and, and we look forward. Um, it's very comprehensive, and, um, and I know that there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you so much. And our next um, speaker is Dr. Sarah Sammons, and Dr. Sammons is um, Associate Director, Metastatic Breast Cancer Program, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and Dr. Sammons will be addressing discussion of clinical trials, how clinical trials add to treatment options, preventing and managing treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain, and guidelines for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, quality of life concerns, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Sammons. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me um, this lovely Friday. Um, so I'm going to start by talking a little bit about clinical trials. Everything that has been discussed to date has really talked about standards of care, and standards of care are what we can offer off of a clinical trial that, you know, to our knowledge and to date and by national and international guidelines are what we know offer patients the best uh, opportunity for a good outcome. But how do, we, how do we make these standards of care? Um, generally, we make standards of care by doing clinical trials. And what clinical trials are are research studies that test a certain intervention in hopes of improving outcomes for patients facing breast cancer or really any type of illness. Um, and again, almost every standard of care and treatment recommendation to date comes from these well-designed clinical trials that are designed and powered by statisticians to answer a clinical question um, in hopes of improving outcomes. The benefits of clinical trials are an opportunity to obtain a new therapy that, you know, for many reasons we think may be better than the standard of care um, to contribute to science. 
Um, and then there are certainly some potential downsides of trials. Um, you know, it might be a little bit more, few, more trips to the clinic. Um, and, you know, we, we certainly don't know that what we're offering is better than the standard of care. Um, but one of the main questions that I'm asked about clinical trials to date is, am I going to get a placebo arm or a sugar pill? And, and generally, we do not design clinical trials um, so that the control arm or the non-therapeutic intervention um, would be placebo. You would at least be getting standard of care, the best that we have. And then if there was the placebo, it would be added to that standard of care. So we certainly are, are, not, are not at that place anymore in clinical trial design. In early stage breast cancer, um, there are clinical trials that, that attempt to improve quality of life for patients that are getting standard of care. There are clinical trials that try to help patients tolerate medications better, either through counseling or nursing interventions, through acupuncture, um, through other medications. There are also clinical trials that add therapies to existing standard therapies in hopes of improving cure rates, um, particularly for women that have higher risk breast cancers. Um, as Dr. Wade uh, previously discussed, there are recent clinical trials in the hormone receptor positive setting that added these drugs called CDK4-6 inhibitors, either abemacyclib or ribocyclib to five years of endocrine therapy in hopes of, of improving cure rates. And, um, you know, one of them is now FDA approved, and that one would be a bemacyclib. But the reason it's approved is because it was in a clinical trial. In hormone receptor positive early stage breast cancer, we're also bringing newer endocrine therapies into clinical trials. Um, the class of drugs um, that we use as standard of care in the adjuvant setting to reduce recurrence rates are either tamoxifen or aromatase inhibitors, but there are newer drugs that we're using in the metastatic setting called oral thirds or oral selective estrogen receptor degraders, and those are moving into early stage clinical trials. In triple negative and HER2 positive breast cancer, we, we do a pretty good job um, of, of treating patients um, with therapies before surgery so that we can assess their outcome. And the way we do that is by determining their pathologic complete response. And if the standard of care therapy gives the patient a pathologic complete response, then we don't think that they need any other additional therapies. But if they don't have a pathologic complete response, we know that their risk of recurrence is a bit higher. And so we do have other drugs in clinical trials in the non-pathologic complete response rate setting in HER2 positive and triple negative breast cancer. And most of those drugs are antibody drug conjugates, which are very targeted ways of delivering chemotherapy. Um, and not only do we try to add therapies to improve outcomes, we also try, um, at least at my institution, we're very big on de-escalation clinical trials as well. And what that means is that some patients don't need all the chemotherapy that we're giving them. And so we're, we've designed clinical trials to try to um, provide therapies that have less chemotherapy um, and, and still try to achieve um, the rigorous outcome standards um, to make sure that even though we're giving less therapy, patients are still doing as well. So there are some clinical trials that are looking at less therapies um, for example, in HER2-positive breast cancer in small tumors, um, there are clinical trials out there that are looking at endocrine therapy with HER2-targeted therapies and trying to eliminate chemotherapy altogether for those very select patients. Most patients will still need chemotherapy. Um, clinical trials change practice, and they're essential to move the field forward, and that's why we do them. If you're interested in a clinical trial, the first step would be to talk to your uh, medical care team. Um, clinical trials are at many centers now. It used to be mostly an academic uh, center that offered clinical trials, but now many and often most community oncology programs are, are offering clinical trials, which is wonderful. Uh, moving on to preventing and managing side effects. Um, a, a good friend of mine once said, you can't benefit from a drug that you don't take. And almost as important as prescribing these medications is making sure that patients can tolerate the side effects of them because if we can't get our patients to live well on them, they're simply not going to take them and then they'll derive no benefit. 
Um, and the reality is even if we make strides in cancer therapeutics, we really have to be upfront with managing side effects um, to optimize compliance. Um, so there are some drugs that have prevention strategies for side effects, meaning that you can do something to prevent having a side effect, but most don't. Um, in the early stage setting, um, the, there's a few prevention strategies that I could think of in patients with triple negative breast cancer that have that don't have a pathologic complete response. We often recommend ketocitabine or Zolota. And at our conference, our national conference this year, we saw a clinical trial that showed that topical diclofenac, which is over the counter, um, or Vitorin, um, also reduces. Um, a side effect of, of peeling in the hands and feet um, very remarkably. Um, so, so that's one thing that we can do. Um, but outside of prevention, um, in terms of treating side effects, we have many, many ways um, as oncologists and our nurses and our nurse navigators and our um, advanced care practitioners help us with this because this is the bulk of our practice is managing side effects. We have many ways um, to help get you through your therapy, whether that's chemotherapy, targeted therapy, endocrine therapy. So the most important thing that a patient can do is report those side effects rather soon to the medical team. Don't sit at home and suffer with them. If you're having diarrhea, report it immediately. There are things we can do. Nausea, we have medications for that. Um, endocrine therapy side effects, we've been managing them for decades and we have ways to help you with that as well. So the most important thing that you can do is report it to your medical care team in a timely fashion. Um, and then moving on to um, my last topic for today is kind of telehealth and engaging with um, the electronic medical record system, which is kind of new for all of us uh, in the last five to ten years. I think one of the positive impacts uh, of the global COVID-19 pandemic was that it really catapulted telehealth into a reality. Um, we always had the capability to do telehealth, but nobody really got their act together enough to be able to do it. And when I talk about telehealth, I'm talking about you not physically coming into the clinic, but you engaging your healthcare team or provider by a Zoom visit or a telephone visit, usually more of a video option is, is what's available, that sometimes telephone visits are available. And almost every center has this capacity now, as we had to have this capacity during COVID, and, and many of us moved towards that. Um, some people like telehealth visits and some people don't. So it's kind of a matter of, of preference, but they can certainly be convenient in certain settings. Um, Telehealth visits um, can be um, okay if it's just a follow-up visit where you really don't need a physical exam. Um, if it's, um, you know, you needed to get labs, um, you know, sometimes we allow patients to get labs locally and then have a telehealth visit to let us know how their side effects are going. Um, as, as a breast cancer survivor, you'll still engage with your team, you know, for years to come, and sometimes those survivorship visits can be telehealth visits, um, but anytime there's a physical exam concern or you need that, you know, at least yearly physical exam as a survivor, um, an in-person visit would be best, but telehealth can be good um, outside, of those, um, outside of those needs. And, and really just like any in-person visit, it's good to come to a telehealth visit prepared. Um, you know, studies have actually shown that patients only um, truly comprehend almost 30% of what you say in a visit. Um, and so repetition is key. Um, bringing someone with you, um, you know, to either a telehealth or an in-person visit can be incredibly helpful because maybe they'll pick up some things that were said that you wouldn't. Um, some patients do like to, video, uh, to, to audio record, and that's okay, um, but most states require that you at least ask your provider if, if you can record. Um, and so, um, and coming to those visits prepared with questions um, is always um, recommended. And then just briefly to touch upon patient open notes, um, this is a movement by patients um, and advocates for transparency and open access to the medical notes that are written by your healthcare providers. And, and so via a national, you know, mandate, it's now required that, that your notes um, and your labs and your um, at least imaging is, is 
readily available for you to view in a timely fashion. Um, and, you know, I, I think some patients really like that, um, and some patients don't prefer to review their labs um, and images before they can go over it with a patient. It's really a matter of, of preference. Um, but certainly, if you do review your labs and images, um, uh, make sure that you're going over it with your, your medical team um, because, you know, you can read things and they can seem somewhat alarming, whereas it's really not, um, or maybe it is alarming and it's something that a doctor really needs to help you get through. Um, and so there are pluses and minuses that we're all still navigating to patient accessibility to records. Um, but overall, you know, what I'm hearing is it's a positive and, and, you know, patients really should be able to advocate for themselves and have access to their own records in a timely manner. I would just suggest that you, you know, go over the records with your care team to help you interpret them and, and decide next steps. And that's, that's all I have um, for my three topics, and thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Sammons. That was an outstanding presentation, and actually, I know there'll be great questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. And uh, our next speaker is Ms. Uh, Jennifer LaPietra, and um, Ms. LaPietra will be, is a bilingual oncology social worker at Cancer Care, and she'll be discussing Cancer Care's free programs and services, and we'll give you information of how to contact Cancer Care by calling our Hope Line and visiting our website. Um, it's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. LaPietra. Thank you, Dr. Messner. It's an honor to participate in today's program. My name is Jennifer LaPietra. I am a bilingual oncology social worker at Cancer Care. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization providing free professional support services and information to help people manage the emotional, practical, and financial challenges of cancer. Our comprehensive services include resource navigation, counseling and support groups, educational workshops, publications, and potential financial assistance. In my role at Cancer Care, I provide supportive services to individuals and families impacted by a cancer diagnosis. A breast cancer diagnosis can be overwhelming. Additional support and guidance, as well as establishing a support network, may help to relieve feelings of anxiety related to one's diagnosis and may be addressed through psychosocial supportive services. Making informed treatment decisions, quality of life concerns, and communication with one's medical team are important topics that can be discussed in counseling with an oncology social worker or by participating in a support group. Joining a support group may be a way of connecting with others going through a similar experience who may understand what you encounter throughout diagnosis and treatment. Currently, Cancer Care offers several breast cancer-specific support groups online. Cancer Care's breast cancer online support groups aim to reduce feelings of loneliness and anxiety, explore new ways of coping, increase feelings of empowerment, provide practical information concerning treatment and resources, and address ways to communicate with one's medical team and loved ones. Cancer Care's online support groups utilize a password-protected message board format and are led by professional oncology social workers who offer support and guidance. Groups are held for 15 weeks at a time. If interested, you may join a support group by registering on our website at cancercare.org by selecting Our Services, then Support Groups. After completing the registration on our website, members can participate by posting in the groups 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Individuals may also experience practical and financial concerns throughout treatment, and it may be helpful to discuss any financial concern with your medical providers. It may also be helpful to connect with a social worker, patient navigator, and the financial department at the treatment center to see if there are financial options available for you. Cancer Care's Resource Navigation offers a short-term, strengths-based approach service to both patients and caregivers. A trained specialist will work with the client in connecting them to resources, referrals, and financial assistance. On Cancer Care's website, cancercare.org, you will find an, a wide array of reading material and information related to breast cancer, as well as stories of help and hope. If you are interested in learning more about the support services Cancer Care offers, I encourage you to call Cancer Care's National Hope Line at 800-813-4673 and speak with one of our oncology social workers. Our social workers are trained in how a breast cancer diagnosis can impact an individual as well as their loved ones.
please know we are here to offer you support throughout your experience. Thank you for your attention and the opportunity to speak on this informative program. I will now turn our program back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. LaPietra. That was an outstanding presentation and a wonderful resource for people on the call today. So thank you so much. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. So now we have time um, for your questions. I'm going to ask Emma to bring all of our speakers on board. I want to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Emma? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. So this is a question for Dr. Um, Dr. Blaze. How is HER2 positive, HER2-ILC treated differently than HER2 plus HER2-IDC? Is ER positive, PR dash HER2 treated differently than ER positive, PR positive, HER2 positive, HER2 negative? Yikes, that's quite a question. <laughs> so I'm going to see if I can try to translate what you were describing in simple terms. So IDC and ILC are really referring to whether or not they're ductal or they're lobular. And I would say we don't treat those we don't treat them differently based on ductal or lobular. Those have to do with what the their pathologic descriptions of what they look like under the microscope. Really, we treat patients based on the biology. So hopefully I can clarify this, but if they're HER2 positive, in either case, IDC or ILC, they're HER2 positive regardless of whether or not they overexpress hormones or not. Um, patients with early-stage curative intent breast cancer are going to get Herceptin-based treatment with chemotherapy. Um, so, for example, the most common situation for cancers over 2 centimeters is they're treated with a taxane-based therapy, um, a chemotherapy with a taxol in combination with two monoclonal antibodies, Herceptin and Perchetta. Um, in some situations, additional chemotherapy, such as carboplatin, is added. Um, and patients in some select situations will still get AC chemotherapy. But the, the backbone, I would say, is going to be using HER2 Herceptin-based therapy, so in this case, Herceptin plus Pertuzumab. They will all go on then to receive some type of Herceptin-based treatment after surgery, whether that's either Herceptin alone Perceptin with Perjeta or using Cadsila. Um, Cadsila is only used if patients have that residual cancer at the time of surgery. There are some select situations where patients have very small early stage one cancers where they'll go to surgery first and then be treated with Texol and Herceptin for 12 weeks, followed by Herceptin alone. Um, if those patients are hormone receptor positive, they will then also receive adjuvant endocrine therapy. So using the t medications, the oral medications, such as tamoxifen or aromatase inhibitors. Thank you. Thanks so much. Okay, excellent. Um, and a question for Dr. Sammons. Um, is past 10 years after radiation and tamoxifen and AI reached 10 years one year ago, is it too late to be to reconsider going through genetic testing? Uh, I would say that it's never too late to consider getting genetic testing. Um, you know, whether you're 10 years out, 15 years out, genetic testing is to understand if you have a hereditary breast cancer syndrome. So if this is something that, you know, could have been related to a gene that, that you were born with and could pass down to a family member, um, you know, what would the implications be at this point in your care? There's not going to be any treatment implications, but there could be potentially enhanced screening for other types of cancer if you were found to have a hereditary breast cancer syndrome. And there would certainly be implications for having your family member get tested. So I would say it's never too late to get genetic testing. Excellent. Thank you. And for Dr. Wade, um, if a person has dense breasts, will an MRI help determine if there is more cancer in the breast? 
and perhaps the other breast and help to guide surgery choice? Um, yeah, great question. And an MRI, an MRI a breast MRI can um, absolutely be helpful in uh, helping to identify lesions that could be missed on standard uh, diagnostic mammogram. Um, and so that, that is typically recommended. And for women with um, highly dense breasts or other high-risk factors, we'll often stagger mammogram with MRI every six months um, so that in, uh, under close surveillance. Thank you so much. And a question uh, for uh, Dr. Blas. Um, will ER only no PR respond as well to endocrine therapy? This gets a little bit more complicated, you know, what we're learning over time, thinking about those genomic types of panels, um, is that they tend to have a higher proliferation index. And so a lot of those cancers where they're losing PR may be more sensitive to chemotherapy um, and as a result, typically have like a higher oncotype score. We don't actually make a decision based just on if there's a loss of progesterone. Um, patients who have any um, expression over about 10% of the estrogen receptor, we're still going to recommend anti-estrogen therapy in the adjuvant setting. Um, so I would not think of a loss of PR as um, an indicator for no endocrine therapy. Um, I would know that biologically those tend to be like a subset that respond better and oftentimes need chemotherapy. But just going back to the basics, I would still rely on your oncotype or your genomic panel to make a decision about chemotherapy. And then if they have any overexpression of estrogen, typically over 10% um, consideration for adjuvant endocrine therapy with an aromatase inhibitor or tamoxifen or consideration of ovarian suppression as we discussed in premenopausal patients are things to consider. Another question for you, Dr. Blas. Um, I understand there is a shortage of chemotherapy drugs in the U.S. How will this shortage impact patients undergoing chemotherapy treatment for breast cancer? Yeah, really good question. How come this isn't on the news more? <laughs> That's what I keep asking myself. Um, honestly, uh, so I'll tell you a little bit what's happening nationally, but also um, what's happening on sort of an institutional level with my own institution, just as a practical example. Um, nationally, there are a lot of organizations, such as the American Society of Clinical Oncology, um, that are looking at um, supplies and, and how do we obtain more uh, medications. The most common one right now where there's a shortage is carboplatin. Um, in breast cancer, in the curative intent, so if we stick with our early stage breast cancer theme of our meeting, um, this is used primarily in triple negative breast cancer. Um, this is really a curative intent situation. And so carboplatin at most institutions is really being preserved and saved actually for um, curative intent settings, such as in triple negative breast cancer. At our own institution, we meet actually on a weekly basis looking at our supply. Um, but all of our curative intent, um, our pediatric patients, for example, they're all still getting carboplatin. So even though it's a problem, it's not affecting us in this situation. What instance, institutions are doing practically is saying, um, could I alter the way chemotherapy is given? For example, if somebody needs AC and carboplatin with Taxol, could I give the AC part first and then give the carboplatin and Taxol, ensuring that perhaps by then I will have time um, to get the drug? Um, the other way that institutions are practically dealing with this is to say, is there an equivalent alternative chemotherapy regimen? Um, so that might impact metastatic settings, um, but not early stage breast cancer. Thank you. And for Dr. Sammons, thank you so much. Um, and for Dr. Sammons, I'm trying to get more information about the five-day radiation treatment plan versus the 16-day treatment plan for early stage breast cancer. Could you comment on that? I am so sorry, but I cannot because I am a medical oncologist and not a radiation oncologist. So that is just not in my wheelhouse. I don't know if any of the other um, folks on the line have expertise in that area. Anyone else like to take that question? 
Okay, then we'll ask you to take that question back to your treating healthcare team. It's a good question, but um, perhaps you would want to ask the radiation team at your institution what they would recommend. That would be an excellent. Um... Yeah, I'll just add to that. You know, typically what I tell patients is I want you to meet with a radiation oncologist just as what's been recommended. There are better, there's more and more data to look at shorter courses, the five-day course being one. Um, in some cases, particularly with older individuals, um, we can actually eliminate radiation, but it's good to sit down and have a one-on-one -on -one conversation where you're really looking at the pros and cons of, of um, those treatment regimens and whether or not you meet criteria for them. And a question for Dr. Wade. If a person has two different cancers, lobular and ductal, should a separate oncotype be done on each? Uh, yeah, great question. and. Um, Kind of as I alluded to, that 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 could be very well be a reason to, to oncotype both both tumors. And I think if it's, uh, for instance, one tumor where you have mixed histopathology, um, lobular and ductal, questionable whether that's going to be helpful. But certainly, if you have two tumors, particularly in different you know different uh, quadrants of the breast, far apart from each other, that would absolutely be a reason to send off uh, oncotype on both. Excellent, thank you. Um, take one more question before we, we are really, um, I realize we're going way over time. Um, so this is a question I'll give it to um, Dr. Blaze. Um, why is Keytruda being added to early triple negatives in neoadjuvant setting when it has some very serious possible side effects? Thanks for that question. So we know, I think all of several of us have mentioned today that part of the, first of all, our goal is to, in this situation, is, is to cure patients. We know patients that have a complete pathologic response, so they go to surgery and there's no residual cancer, um, really do the best in terms of not having cancer recurrence and being cured from their treatment. Adding immunotherapies such as Keytruda or pembrolizumab to chemotherapy in triple negative breast cancers essentially tripled that pathologic complete response rate, um, which means on average, 60, it depends on which trial you look at, but around 60% of patients um, will have no cancer when they go on to um, actually have their surgery. We still recommend surgery. Um, to ensure that all the cancer is gone. So even though there's some known side effects of pembrolizumab, um, it's really recommended because that's going to give people the best chance of having a cure from their triple negative breast cancers. And the hard part is you won't know that until sort of they've received that and gone on to surgery or looked at responses. Coming back to some of the questions, what we don't know is Yes, there's side effects of the medication. So let's say somebody does have a complete response to their treatment. One of the clinical trials that led to the approval of pembrolizumab for triple negative breast cancer, patients went on then to receive pembrolizumab after treatment, after surgery, for nine additional cycles. We actually don't know if that's necessary. Um, and so there is a large trial going through one of the cooperative groups right now actually trying to answer that question. Do we actually need that additional immunotherapy um, if somebody's had an excellent response up front? So this comes back to actually why would you participate in the study? Um, to me, if somebody had an awesome response, I would want my patients to at least consider that trial. It's not the right decision for everybody, um, but it's answering a really important question for the field of, gosh, if I'm an exceptional responder, do I need even more immunotherapy, knowing that there are potential side effects from it? Excellent. Thank you. So I'm going to ask now each of our speakers as we conclude the program today, um, and I realize we have not gotten to everyone's question, but I'll comment on that um, before we conclude the program totally. I'm going to ask each of our speakers to just provide a takeaway for each of you on the call today. So starting with Dr. Blaze, um, then uh, Dr. Smith, Dr. Sammons, and then Ms. LaPietro. So um, do you want to start, Dr. Blaze? Sure. So I think always know that you're, you want to know the basics of your cancer. 
what are the hormone receptor status of it? Um, what is the genomic testing or the, what are the results of that genomic panels? Um, for example, oncotype if it's hormone receptor positive. Um, and what stage is your cancer? Is the goal of the treatment curative or not? These are really appropriate questions and I would tell you write them down because when you're talking to other people, it's um, easy to forget things. Excellent, thank you. And Dr. Smith? Uh, thank you again for having me. Uh, I would just highlight, you know, we are discussing early stage breast cancer and the key to diagnosing early stage breast cancer is early detection. So I would really emphasize the importance of, of uh, patients as well as patients encouraging um, friends and family to, to have the screening mammogram done. Uh, there are patients who fall through the cracks all the time who present with neglected breast cancers. So it really is important to reach out to, to everyone in your circle, making sure that, that they are following up with their provider. And I would just say, when you come to your appointments, it's always good to have somebody come with you. It's always good to ask if a, a, a patient um, navigator is an option and what other ancillary resources are available. Excellent. Thank you. Wonderful. And Dr. Sammons. Yeah, sure. I'll just close by saying I think it's always important to talk to the treatment team, whether it's about chemotherapy, immunotherapy, targeted therapy, you know, can what are the true risks and benefits of the treatment um, that is being recommended for me? Because what I've, I've learned throughout my career is that everybody's affinity for certain risk-benefit ratios is different, and it really has to be personalized. There's no way out of getting... Um, through these risk-benefit conversations with your provider, um, and I think it's important to find a provider that feels comfortable having those discussions with you. Excellent. Thank you. And Ms. LaPietra? Uh, yes, thank you. It was a pleasure being on this program. What I would say is make the best decision that you can with the information that you have and ask the questions as they come up. And as others on this call have already shared, whether it's bringing someone with you to the appointments or writing down your questions and your answers to help you do that, um, that's what we recommend. And know that there is support out there, whether it's through cancer care or through the many hospitals, treatment centers, and nonprofit organizations that offer supportive services for you to really tap into that as needed. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Ms. LaPietra. Excellent. Well, this has been an amazing call, I have to say, and we could go on for another hour and a half with the questions, but of course we have a time frame on this, so I didn't want to, we went over it already, but I just want to say, I want to comment, um, for those of you who got to ask a question, and for those of you who have questions yet to ask, and for those of you who are in queue to ask a question, I want you all to take your questions back to your treating healthcare team. They do know you the best, they have their, your medical records in front of them, and so what you've learned today, please take it back to your team, but ask your question with greater confidence because you know now that all your questions are important and they need to be answered. So you'll ask them over and over again until they do get answered and you have the help that you need. Also, although it is very tempting to feel and it is also normal to feel you're alone in coping with cancer, I, I want you also to, to tuck away the fact that you're really not alone. You are a part of a community of support. There are many, many breast cancer organizations out there to assist you. You also have cancer care to contact who connect you with many other resources as well and also can provide some help to you. So please um, do take advantage of all those resources. I guess I want to thank you all for your participation today and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.